So John chapter 20 and verse 1. As we read, we remember that this is God's Word. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial clothes that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned round to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had, he had said these things to her. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to that passage we read earlier, page 1089, John chapter 20, really looking at verses 10 to 18, especially John 21 to 18, perhaps. We're at another Easter service. For some of you, you have been at many, many Easter services. For others, maybe this is your first, maybe your first in Hill Street, certainly. And, and the question we've got to ask is, what difference does it make? So what Easter? So what? What difference does it make? And, and the answer really is all the difference in the world, all the difference in the world. This is the most transforming, significant event in all of human history. It's absolutely crucial to the Christian faith and absolutely crucial if we will realize it for you and for me. The early Christians uh, developed that, used that greeting that we used this morning as our call to worship. One of them would say, the Lord is risen, and the other would say, He is risen indeed. It was, it was so significant for them that they wanted to remind themselves of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ every time they say hello and goodbye. And, and we would probably do well to recover some of that, because if we are honest, we forget about it for great swathes of the day, 
It's not that we don't believe it. It is that we don't live in the light of it. There have been those, there are those, of course, who don't believe it. Uh, uh, right down through the history of the church, the church has interacted with people like that. Paul had to deal with it right at the beginning. There were people like that in Corinth. They taught that the resurrection was just a, a concept. It was a spiritual resurrection, that Jesus' bones were still in Jerusalem. But Paul was absolutely ruthless with them. He said, this is crucial, as it were, if he's not been raised, we're still in our sins, our preaching is useless, we're wasting our time, and we're to be pitied above all men, he said. So it's really, really pivotal. You can't leave this out of Christianity and think you've still got Christianity, you've got something else. But for most of us, I would imagine that's not our problem. It's not that we don't believe it, but the problem is we don't always live in the light of it. It's not the thing that is clear within our heads that shapes our days, that the risen Lord is present and with His people day after day. In other words, we functionally, we sometimes talk about what we believe functionally, we functionally think, functionally live as if it never really happened. And that's a disaster. And, and, and uh, we see that whenever Jesus rose from the dead, He spent time with His disciples making it clear that He really was alive and working through the implications of that with them. We want to learn from them in that sense this morning. One of those disciples is Mary, Mary Magdalene. We call her Mary Magdalene because she was from a town called Magdala, and she was a devoted disciple of Jesus. She's mentioned first every time the, the female followers of Jesus are mentioned. We sometimes don't realize that with the we sometimes talk about the disciples and think of the apostles as the 12, the 12 men that, that, that Jesus had specially designated. But there was a whole band that followed Jesus and women among them. And uh, Mary seems to have been perhaps the leader of these women. We discovered in, in Luke 8, 2 that, that seven demons had gone out from her. That's all that it says. So, so we imagine that at some point Jesus had delivered her from some terrible spiritual affliction. Now, history's not been very kind to Mary Magdalene. In the fifth century, Pope Gregory identified her as the same woman who wept over Jesus and poured ointment on his feet and wiped them with her hair. And the Pharisees at the time said, doesn't Jesus know that this is an immoral woman? Now, there's no tie between Mary Magdalene and that woman. In fact, Luke tells us about both people and doesn't identify them as the same person, so it's probably not. But, but Pope Gregory said that she was, and... Uh, said that she was a prostitute, and that label has sort of stuck ever since. There's no evidence for that. The, 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 there's a film, of course, in the cinema at the moment about her now. Hollywood has done a complete uh, makeover on her and uh, turned her into sort of an entrepreneurial feminist, I gather. I've not seen the movie, but I've read some of the reviews. Uh, so equally, perhaps, far from what the Bible says really about her. She's an incredibly devoted disciple. The 12 abandon Jesus when he's on the cross largely, but we find in Matthew 19 that this Mary and some of the others, some of the other women are at the cross when Jesus dies. His body is taken down. It is taken to the tomb of a rich man called Joseph of Arimathea, a very significant man in Jerusalem, and he had just obviously commissioned a new tomb, probably for himself and for his family, never been used, and he gives it to uh, Jesus, as it were. He gives it to the body of Jesus, a remarkable thing to do. 
Did he know that he was only going to borrow it? I suppose that if he'd known he was only going to borrow it, it doesn't seem such a big thing, but he probably didn't. It's unlikely that, that, that he did because many of the disciples at that point had no idea that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. But what Luke tells us is that as Jesus was being buried, Mary was there, the, the woman who came from Galilee were there watching where he was laid. Nothing happened on the Sabbath, the next day, the Saturday, but then on the Sunday, very early in the morning, Mary goes to the tomb. John only concentrates on Mary. The other gospels tell us there were other women with her. It's implied in chapter 20, verse 2, where she says, we don't know where they have laid him. She's talking about the other woman there, obviously. Now, we looked at all of this down at the park this morning. She gets there. She sees the stone rolled away. She thinks that Jesus' body has been taken by someone. She runs back to John and Peter. They run and go into the tomb. John believes. Peter's perplexed, and the men go home, but Mary remains. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 11. She is weeping. She's distraught. She has loved Jesus immensely, her life has been changed and transformed by him, and now he is gone. The events of this last couple of days seem like a bad dream, and when she sees the stone has been moved, she doesn't think resurrection. She thinks that someone has taken the body. And even whenever she looks into the tomb in verse 11, probably for the first time, she even then doesn't believe. She thinks that Jesus' body has been taken. It's not uncommon, by the way, to hear people say that the resurrection accounts were made up by the disciples at the time so that they could justify their project, their movement, as it were. But that's clearly not the case, and, and I want to give you three reasons. Maybe some of us are, are trying to figure all this out. We're a little bit uh, skeptical about some of it, or we've got some questions about it. Here are three reasons why we can treat this as authentic testimony. First of all, if you had been making this up at the time, you would never have made Mary to be the first witness of the risen Jesus. Women's place in society was very low then. Women were not regarded as reliable witnesses in court. And so the fact that Jesus has uh, appears, first of all, to a woman would have really damaged the credibility of the Christian story in the first days of the church. The only reason that you would have had Mary as the first witness of the resurrection is if she actually was. Second thing is to say that, that uh, those who became leading lights in the early church, the apostles, don't appear very positively in these stories. They, they clearly are not great men of faith at this point. They're not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. The enemies of Jesus have some expectation that uh, Jesus that Jesus followers might try to do something, that they might try to steal his body and spread a story, but, but they're not even thinking that way. They're in disarray. And again, you wouldn't make up a story like this in order to support your movement. And the third thing is that the very story of a resurrection was incredibly problematic in the ancient world. The Jews were not used to thinking of, of God as anything other than one, and so to learn that God was Father and risen Son as well as Holy Spirit was very difficult for the Jews to comprehend. The, the Gentiles were not used to the idea of God taking on flesh 
the material things in the world were sort of bad. And, and so the idea that God would take on flesh as Jesus Christ was very difficult for the Greeks, for the, for the Gentiles. So, so you wouldn't make these things up. It really has, therefore, the ring of eyewitness testimony to it. And the testimony is clearly telling us that this Jesus who died upon the cross, whose life extinguished, whose heart stopped beating, that he rose from the dead on the third day, just as he said he would. Well, what is it that we're to then learn from all of this? What are the implications of this? Well, Jesus shows us two great implications that we must live in the light of as he deals with Mary. Two of them. First of all, because Christ is risen, the love of God to you is confirmed. The love of God to you is confirmed. The resurrection confirms all that Jesus said and did while he was on earth. And it is God's seal of approval on the Son's work. And so it is God saying yes to example uh, Jesus telling us that God so loved the world. So whenever you think, perhaps, you know, I, I just feel completely lost and alone in the universe, this world seems pointless and without hope, you can remind yourself that though that it may feel that way sometimes, that you are someone who is loved by God because Christ is risen and so we can know that the love of God to sinners like us is true. But, but what I want us to see is how that works out very specifically with Mary. She looks into the tomb, and she sees two angels. Now, she's one of the very few people in the Bible who see angels and doesn't appear to be afraid. Maybe it's an indication of the depth of her grief. But these angels were not there whenever John and Peter are in the tomb. And it's not as if they have any purpose other than their interaction with Mary. It's for her that they're concerned. Why are you weeping, they say. That's their concern. So what are we to conclude? Only this. These are angels sent for Mary. For no other purpose, they're sent for Mary. God must love her very much. Then Jesus appears she doesn't realize it's him. She knows there's somebody behind him, behind her. She turns around. She doesn't recognize him. It's still early. There's maybe not much light. Maybe Jesus' appearance has changed a little. He is no longer the man of sorrows, marred by the crucifixion. He is youthful and clear. Or is she looking through tears? It's, it's hard to say, but she assumes him to be the gardener. And you notice that Jesus, too, is concerned for her weeping. Why are you weeping? She's still thinking of a missing body. You see that? She continues not to recognize him until, of course, she speaks her name. He speaks her name, Mary. That just breaks through for her. She's heard him say that name so many times, and she hears this voice that she never thought she would hear again. Now, there's something slightly deeper than the memory of a voice here. John quotes Jesus earlier in John chapter 10, verses 3 to 4. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. This is Jesus tenderly dealing with one of his little lambs, one of his sheep. So he comes to her. He comes to her gently. Now, you, you may need to think about this. 
Who is this after all? We've been singing about this person. He is the Lord of glory. He's the King of kings. He is the, the risen one, and yet he comes humbly and gently, so humbly and gently to his child that she assumes him to be the gardener. How do you imagine the risen Jesus to be? Clothed in splendor? Well, yes. But don't you have your, your gardening clothes? Usually the things that are fairly worn out, not your best. That's how Jesus appeared to Mary. How humble our Lord is. Not only that, but in his first resurrection moments, what is he doing? Who does the risen Lord in glory, who does he choose to meet with? A struggling disciple. One who cannot stop weeping. One who is not even at the stage of doubt, but is just in despair. In fact, if you think of what Jesus does in so many of his resurrection appearances, he meets with those who despair like Mary, who have given up like Cleopas and his companion on the Emmaus Road, who are full of doubt like Thomas, who have denied him like Peter. Isn't that remarkable? He, he just gives time to those who are struggling, who are on the edge of things. If you go to A&E, you, you, you know that you need to get through the triage nurse. It's her job to decide whether you're bluffing or not, and you just couldn't be bothered going to the GP. And, uh, and she, she'll figure out whether your case is really urgent. This is like a great triage amongst his disciples, isn't it? Well, they all need him in various ways, but he appears to prioritize those who struggle, who doubt, who are disillusioned. And so if you're here today, and despite all the joy of the praise and the positive message of Easter, you're saying, it's Easter, it's great, but, but what would Jesus want with me? I'm such a poor Christian. My, my doubts are so great. My sins are so significant. My struggles are so all-encompassing. All then look here and see who Jesus comes to. He comes to people like that, people like us. Because Christ is risen, God's love is confirmed. Mary experienced it. Second thing, because Christ is risen, your status has been secured. Mary holds on to Jesus. It seems as if she has fallen at his feet. Jesus says something that lots of people puzzle over, do not hold on to me for I've not yet returned to the Father. And some people have thought that this was Jesus telling her not to touch him, that there's something special about him in some way, but that doesn't seem to be the case. After all, later on in the chapter, he will ask Thomas to touch him, but, but maybe the key is that, that Thomas is asked to touch him, and Mary is actually clinging to him. It, it betrays an attitude, perhaps, that needs to be corrected. She wept, you see, because she thought she'd lost Jesus forever, but she clings to him because she thinks she can have him back in the old way that she had him before. But that can't happen because Jesus needs to go to the Father. And actually, it's something much better for Mary and for everyone because Jesus can be through His Spirit with all of His people at once. 
You see, that's the problem here. Jesus can come and can comfort Mary and then can go and comfort Cleopas and can meet with Peter and so on, but he can't be with all of them together. But when he ascends to heaven and sends his Spirit, he is with all of his people all of the time, with us too. The gift of the Spirit is what his people really, really need, and, and Mary is clinging on to the old way rather than the new way. And then look at what Jesus says. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And isn't that remarkable? Go and tell your brothers, my brothers. It's the disciples that are in mind. He calls them brothers. They had let him down big time. They had scattered like Peter. Some had denied him. And yet he calls them brothers. How loving and gracious this Lord is. And it's not just to those disciples, but to us too. In Hebrews, it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them his people brothers. If you're a Christian here today, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. And he points out this relationship with God that we have, my Father and your Father, he says. You see, because he is alive, because he's been raised, his saving work is complete. All who trust in him really are children of God. We, we looked at this the other night in the Lord's Prayer. We get to say, our Father. Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father. You see, because Jesus is alive, he has secured for us a new standing with the Father, a new relationship. We are his children if we are trusting in Christ. We are brought into this new family. You notice that it's, it's, it's distinctive, isn't it? He doesn't say, here, our Father, our relationship with the Father is not the same as his relationship with the Father. He is a son by right eternally. We are sons by adoption upon conversion. But we're brought into this incredible relationship whereby God is our Father. And we, as we've seen before, He treats us as His adopted children just as He treats His Son. The same love, the same standing, the same welcome. Not because we're the same of Jesus, but because we are, are clothed with Jesus covered by his work. So what difference does Easter make? All the difference in the world. It confirms God's love to you. You can walk into this day and every day knowing that as a Christian, the Lord himself is concerned for you, that he loves you, that he will not leave you, that your tears matter to him, that your joy is what he seeks. And all of that is found as you draw near to him who was dead and who is alive forevermore. And it confirms your status. God is your father if you're trusting in Christ. You're brought into this new family that he is building. Jesus, our elder brother, what a privilege. And having brought us in, he will never turn us away. Just as we finish, though, don't forget who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to one of his, his disciples, one of his followers. She had met him some years earlier. She had trusted in him. She was following him. You see, these blessings, what's on the screen, these are blessings for the follower, for the believer. Maybe some of us today are, are not yet there. 
You know, in some ways, this story is even more for you. Because if we were to get to the end of this chapter, we would read John saying these words, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. You see, the purpose of this story and all the stories that John writes are so that you might believe. So, so, so if you're here today and, and you're not sure about this, don't, don't treat this as interesting speculation. Don't treat it as a metaphor. You'll hear some of that on the radio these days. Easter, it's all about hope. It's just, it doesn't really matter whether it happened or not. It's all about hope. That's what you'll hear. Don't treat it like that. It is telling you about the one who came for you, who, who, who died for you, who rose for you so that you would believe and then have life in his name. And if you're not there yet, then what possible day in all of the year would be better to believe in his name than this day, this resurrection day? To say, Lord, I do believe you. Lord, I trust in you. Lord, I seek life in your name. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that we come in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus to worship him. Thank you that the grave did not hold him. We thank you that you raised him to life, vindicating all that he said and did showing that his sacrifice for us was full and sufficient. Lord, help us to live in the light of that. If we're not yet believers, help us to trust in him, to believe in his name, that we might have life in his name. And help us, Lord, if we've been on the Christian road, to live every day in the light of the risen Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.